Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm joined this week by Helen Thompson, Finn Barlivsi, Glenn Rangwala and Chris Brooke. And we're going to talk about British politics because we haven't done that for a while. Uh, I think like everyone else, we've just been completely swept up by the drama in the United States. We're not going to be able to avoid it entirely, but we need to talk about Brexit. We're meeting on Wednesday morning and later today, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, is going to be giving the autumn statement. It's been trailed a bit in advance. There's going to be some hike up of the living wage, probably. There's going to be some fiddling around with the housing market. But basically, two things are going to overshadow it, as they're going to overshadow everything else this government does. The first is that money is tight. I think there was a statement off the record coming from the government saying that there is even less money left than there was in 2010, when famously there was no money left. So there's even less money than no money. And then the other thing that overshadows everything this government does is Brexit. And maybe we'll talk about this a bit later. It's not at all clear that anything that the Chancellor can do, or indeed anything that the government can do, it may be that nothing the Chancellor does, indeed nothing that the government does outside of Brexit matters, because that's what's going to decide whether this government is a success or not. But I think we need to start with Trump very briefly, not to talk about what's happening in America, we'll come back to that. But I just want to ask whether Trump's election, which is still the the kind of fact that just hangs over politics around the world, has it changed the dynamics of Brexit in the sense that some people have suggested that it's going to be harder for Britain to get a deal because European political leaders, they can't do anything about Trump. But if Brexit and Trump are part of a, a wave of populist revolts against the establishment, they can at least punish the people who voted for Brexit as a way of trying to signal this has to stop now. And so there was an article in The Guardian, for instance, that suggested that some European leaders see this as the moment where they have to draw a line. And so the negotiations are going to be tougher. Does anyone, Finbar, do you want to start with that? Does anyone buy the view that Trump has made it harder for the May government to get a good deal? I think it makes it harder in that category, but also there's one other, it makes it easier category, which is there's something worse than Brexit. And there is this overarching distraction, but also concern that the impact of a Trump presidency is going to be of a far greater magnitude than Brexit right now. On the other side, it is going to make Brexit harder because, as you said, there's a sequencing to what's going to happen in the French elections, what's going to happen in the rest of the negotiations. And you get a feeling from some of the comments from some of the negotiators and other people off the record, on the record, they're gearing up for a big fight so that there is no signaling that says that the rest of Europe is going to go this way. I think there is one way in which um, Trump is good for Brexit, and that is is that Trump's arrival or not quite arrival yet, but soon to be arrival in the White House has changed financial markets. And they've changed them in ways that means that a Eurozone crisis or a renewal of the Eurozone crisis is much more likely than it was quickly. And that is because the impact of Trump on bond markets in particular has been to increase yields and to increase spreads in particular on Italian bonds over German bonds. Now, as soon as you get into a situation in which the eurozone is in significant risk of near-term implosion, then the whole 
political context in which Brexit takes place or the negotiations towards Brexit take place or even getting to the negotiations for Brexit take place is radically different. And so that is the great unknown, is, is when the Eurozone crisis is going to happen. That was true prior to Trump. But what Trump has done or Trump's election has done is to put more pressure, immediate pressure on the periphery bond markets. And that is consequential. So is there any sense in which what Trump does is it focuses minds in Europe on the fact that there is a threat to the entire European project and driving a hard bargain on Brexit is itself a damaging endeavour and that really Europe has to hang together at this point. Is anyone going to, it doesn't feel like at the moment, is anyone going to take the broad magnanimous view, do you think, from the European side, Glenn? Well, one argument could be that with Trump... um, Withdrawing from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, no or prospect saying he'll do it on day one. Indeed, um, no prospect of resumption of TTIP, um, which already was pretty much dead, but no prospect of it being renewed with regard to the transatlantic, the parallel process to TPP. In this context, at least with a relatively isolationist US, if it looks that way in regard to security matters, um, NATO still being a an overhanging question with regard to Trump's foreign policy. In this context, it makes sense for Europe to hang together, one could argue, that in that sense, including Britain, within arrangements that give the UK some leeway within the European project without being a member of the European Union, continues to make sense. So one could make the argument that in that sense, at least, it's within the interest of European states to You could make the argument, but do you think the argument has any bite with Italian, German, French politicians at the moment? So just coming back to the point that that Helen was making, the extent to which there are so many conditional clauses in this, the the French elections next next March and April, the Italian referendum, the German elections later in, in the year, there are so many things here that could disrupt these processes amicable negotiations between Britain and Europe, um, that to try to make any solid predictions is really hazardous at the moment, is more so than ever before. I mean, one European country that's slightly differently situated to the others is Ireland. And I mean, some people think that Ireland has an interest in Britain being bundled out of the EU because that will make Ireland the sole English language speaking country and Dublin uh, business may do well out of the decline of the city. But more likely, people think that the Irish have quite a strong interest in the process of Britain's withdrawal from the EU, causing less friction and less tension and less disruption. Often in England, we don't pay enough attention to the enormously thorny difficulty of the Irish border. So I can imagine Irish politicians trying to play the magnanimous card in the context of this kind of uncertainty. But whether it will have traction with other European countries is very unclear. And in particular, after the French Republican primary election that we had at the weekend, Fillon won that election. Plenty of people think that Fillon is not as strong a candidate against Marine Le Pen as Alain Juppé would be. Left-wing voters may be less likely to vote for him in a gesture of Republican solidarity against the threat from the Front National. And as Glenn was saying, there are so many things that are going on. There's so much uncertainty it is hard to see how a magnanimous move could easily come off in the short to medium term. I think, though, we can see one thing. It's not a question of anyone being magnanimous. It's just a question of different interests. Is, is If we look at the way in which the EU reacted to Donald Trump's election, the response was to hold an effectively an emergency summit 
And there were three countries that did not go to that, and the two most significant being Britain and France. And that is because Britain and France matter in terms of security in Europe in a way in which other European Union members do not. So at that point, when it seemed that there was an issue about how to respond, or where there was an issue about how to respond to the new American presidency, actually the French government lined up with the British government and not the German government, and I think that is significant going forward. So one direct impact of Trump's election for Theresa May is that she made a commitment that Brexit Britain would have the lowest corporation tax rates in the G20. And Trump has committed himself, we're meant to believe, though his commitments look a bit fluid at the moment, day by day, to 15% corporation tax, although if you add on state taxes, it may you, you can play it lots of different ways. So let's leave the figures out of it, but there is at least a possibility here, and this relates to Ireland as well, that we're going to see a kind of race to the bottom. One fear was we would see a tariff war, but the other possibility is actually we see this kind of competition to attract business, so kind of doubling down on that sort of globalisation by pulling down corporation tax rates, trying to make Britain the... I mean, I'm looking at Finbar here, no particular reason, trying to make Britain the Ireland of Europe. I mean, that is to draw in, you know, in the way that Chris was mentioning, actually, there's a real competition here just to draw in foreign capital. Yeah, but the concern is that by doing that, you are seriously affecting the tax receipts. And so there's been good work that looks at what's happened with the corporation tax rate being lowered over the last number of years. And the IFS best estimate is that it's cost the UK £10 billion a year every year since 2010 because of the effect of lowering of the corporation tax rate. So fine, we got down to 20%. We said we were going to go down to 17%. And now with the signalling, it looks like 15% is possible. Ireland's standing at 12.5%. So do you go down to there? All that it would start is a slight bidding war. It would reduce the tax receipts and it would make the fiscal position worse. So I don't understand it, actually, because the conditions that the UK has in terms of attracting inward investment in R&D and all those other things, they don't need the corporation tax reduction for that to continue. There are other elements in the tax code some people violently disagree with, some people think have a very strong impact, the patent box being the most important of them, which basically says that uh, for proceeds that come off patents specifically in in specific categories, your corporation tax rate for that gets lowered to 10%, so you get a different effective rate. We have a complicated tax code that is already preferencing R&D and attempting to preference innovation and attempting to get at the holy grail of productivity improvements. And that's really the conversation we should be having rather than this competition over corporation tax rates. So you've second guessed me there because I was going to say my understanding, not being an expert in this at all, was that productivity is the issue for the British economy. And this doesn't address that. I mean, that's the competition that we're really in. If the British economy does not become more productive. None of this. And we've had a better. we've had a long run problem in productivity differentials between the UK and European countries, a very large gap between the UK and America. But what really is terrifying is that when you look at the graph of productivity improvement over the last, say, 10, 12, 15 years, up to 2007, the long-run average improvement was about 2.2%. Since 2007, productivity improvement has flatlined. It has gone nowhere. And so we seem to be in a very dangerous situation that we're reaching for implements that are going to make the fiscal position worse, and we're not addressing the productivity challenge. Is there any chance that Trump will kill American productivity? He says, <laughs> in total ignorance of this is that I mean there is a big gap but I know the president has limited power to do things like kill productivity <laughs> I think that it's a bit premature at the moment to talk about what any government is going to do in um, fiscal terms because the thing that they've 
all got to reckon with first is what the Federal Reserve Board is going to do when it meets in December about uh, American interest rates. And at the moment, the markets are presuming that there definitely is an interest rate hike coming in December. Now, if that happens, the whole situation in bond markets and for currencies is going to be thrown into turmoil. And at that point, it's going to be not very easy, to put it mildly, for any government to say, OK, well, we said a few months ago we're going to do this, this and that fiscally, including Donald Trump, and then actually do it. Because Donald Trump wants to go on a massive borrowing binge, essentially, to finance tax cuts and infrastructure expenditure. And the Fed may well make that pretty difficult for him. And in doing so, it's going to cause, as I say, a whole lot of other countries a great deal of problems through the currency turbulence it will generate. So what, why would it be turmoil if the markets are expecting it? It will be turmoil because that's what happened last time, even when the markets were expecting the Fed to uh, increase interest rates in December 2015. Everybody thought that it was priced into the markets and particularly into the currency markets, and it wasn't. What it generated was massive capital outflow out of China. By the February of 2016, the uh, major central banks of the world were having to work out an, an informal exchange rate agreement between them to, to absorb the consequences of what had happened. We're living in such a febrile monetary and financial world that even things that are priced in can still have profound consequences. One thing that we got some feedback from... A listener last time was I made a sort of semi-serious, semi-glib comparison between Theresa May and Donald Trump that some of their domestic agendas look similar, though actually, given that as a Glenn is looking very skeptical, so Glenn, you can be the proxy for our skeptical listener, who, who more or less said you can't compare these things at all. So the similarity is in here are politicians of the, of the right claiming the language of the working class and being representatives of the working class. Here are politicians who are talking about infrastructure projects and a kind of a, a slightly more Keynesian approach than their parties had traditionally been comfortable with and so on. But of course, they are very different. And one of the big differences is that Theresa May is constrained by what looks like a pretty small C conservative chancellor who's not going to let her go on any kind of spending binge, whereas who knows who's constraining Trump. But I mean, the question more broadly is, is it, is it actually absurd to think that Trump and May are in the same space on some domestic issues. And I'm leaving race out of this because, I mean, that clearly just makes everything different. But just in terms of the sort of domestic policy agenda that they might think that they are now representing. There are certain certain similarities. Of course, one can point to the ways in which um, Theresa May, for example, is using the language of the working class in a way that we are not used to seeing in right-wing British politics over, over the past few decades. There are ways in which one could point to a similar context within which they operate within... Um, situations of considerable political uncertainty and considerable political um, upheaval. But but I think fundamentally they are different types of political animal. Theresa May is, is essentially a creation politically of the Conservative Party, which constrains her political outlook as well as her political actions in a way that Trump just completely is not in a relationship with a political party in anything like the same format, which enables him to become the, the anti-establishment figure that he is. It enables him to not take a lead from authoritative political forces within the party. It enables him to have a hostile relationship with significant parts of the American political system. And that just isn't an option for Theresa May. That just isn't a way in which she can potentially act in her own policy agenda. So it's so hard not to keep talking about Donald Trump. <laughs> Let's get back to Brexit, because that's, that's still the thing that's just hanging over all of this. Chris, Something that we haven't talked about at all because we've been so obsessed with Trump is the 
court judgment that says, and that the government is appealing, that says that Parliament must have a vote before Article 50 is triggered. And it's a question about the use of the royal prerogative. And the legal opinion was that the government cannot use the royal prerogative to abolish rights that have themselves been put in statute by Parliament. Only Parliament can do that. This is now going to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's going to start hearing evidence early in December, and they have included in that that they're going to hear evidence from the Scottish Government, from the Welsh Assembly, because there is also a question about whether the constituent parts of the United Kingdom should also have a say in this. People are arguing about this a lot, but how much has this changed the dynamics, do you think, of the the overall Brexit story? Is this just a little blip along the road, or is it, could this actually change the trajectory of how Brexit plays out? It could change the directory of how Brexit plays out, but that's dependent on what a lot of MPs who are keeping a very low profile at the moment are thinking about things. One of the very interesting things about British politics over the last six months is how much of it has gone on in private. A lot less has gone on in public than we're used to. It would have been the conversations going on around the Conservative Party conference that made a big difference to... Uh, Theresa May's very strong line on Brexit means Brexit and this kind of thing. And we know that the bulk of MPs are not in favour of leaving the European Union. We know that there are plenty of Conservatives who are pretty sceptical about what the government is up to. But these are people who are hardly saying anything at all in public. And I mean, you can imagine it going two ways. You can imagine if the, I mean, this is if the court does rule that a parliamentary action is needed. You can imagine Theresa May putting a very simple bill that just invites the parliament to authorise the triggering when the executive says so. And you can, you can imagine Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell trying to whip the Labour benches through in support of it. They've come out very strongly in favour of, and pretty much in favour of a hard Brexit over the last, uh, more explicitly than they have before, over the last uh, week or so. And... In that case, it really would be a minor blip that people would make some noises in the House of Commons, but there'd be a substantial majority in giving the government a free hand to do what it wants to do. But you can also imagine things going another way, where parliamentary activity leads a large number of Labour MPs and a significant number of Conservative MPs to start cooperating with one another. I think Corbyn is quite anxious to avoid that. He doesn't want to be seen to be cooperating with political forces substantially to his right. So it may be ultimately that the leadership of, it's the leadership of the Labour Party that helps Theresa May to get what she wants. But overall, I think at this stage, it's very hard to say whether a court judgment will be more than a blip, because so many MPs are keeping their powder dry and not giving any clear steer on what they actually think the role of Parliament should be and what they think Parliament might do if push comes to shove. There was an interesting YouGov poll last week which asked people both did they think that Brexit should go ahead? And they got an answer that 66% of people now think that Brexit should go ahead, and that included nearly half of people who voted leave. They also asked people, should the, the views of the Supreme Court be respected? And the majority said that they should. So there's a kind of, actually, though we're meant to be in this very divided and febrile nation, there's a sort of equanimity about this. But the really striking figure is the first one. And of course, a lot of those MPs who are personally in favour of remaining in the European Union represent constituencies, particularly Labour MPs, outside of London. And the university towns, we should always add that, which are part of London now, virtually. 
a lot of those MPs represent constituencies where there's a strong majority for leave. Yeah, I mean, it does raise this question about how much discretion members of parliament have to use their own personal judgment. But I think there's an assumption that not the answer is not much on this issue. I agree. I mean, I think it would be absolute electoral suicide for Labour MPs to vote down Brexit, and I don't think that they will. I think the problem for Theresa May on this is actually the Lords, where you can see actually a, a more real possibility that the bill might get voted down. But I think on that is is that from Theresa May's point of view, I think she'll have to have a confrontation with the House of Lords about Brexit at some point or another. So why not over so this? So why not over this? Before any of the details have been hashed out. I think it's a lot easier for her to have a confrontation with the Lords and win over this, partly because of the polling that you suggested, but also because it's a kind of binary issue at stake. If she has to have a confrontation with the Lords when she's trying to get a trade deal ratified through Parliament, where if that is rejected, then there's a possibility of having to stay in the European Union. That is a whole different political problem. So, I mean, I actually don't think it's out of the question that the Supreme Court will actually rule with the government if you read the government's arguments that they published um, at the weekend. But assuming that the Supreme Court doesn't and there is a vote, I think that there is a possibility that the Lords will try to vote it down. But I think that that will just trigger a political confrontation that is in Theresa May's interest in many ways. And it may be a context in which she can call a general election without having to back down about her commitment to the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. And does the involvement of the Scottish and the Welsh Parliament Assembly make any difference to this? I mean, it, it would be a huge intervention by the Supreme Court to decide that, say, the Scottish Parliament must also give its assent to the triggering of Article 50. It seems very unlikely. It, that seems far-fetched. and that that's, Whatever the law, because this is yeah, politics. Yeah, right? and so the, the, the position that is interesting is that they've said they must have a voice. I, I think they're trying to tread this fine line, which says we're trying to retain some version of the union, but we're trying not to get in the way of the process that leads to Article 50. It, it's an incredibly fine balancing act. The interesting point, though, coming back to what Chris said earlier, is where's Northern Ireland in all of this and what is going to happen about the issues which aren't being discussed, about the border, about trade, about what's actually going to happen to the island of Ireland in a Brexit scenario, because the government of the Republic of Ireland are caught between America and the UK. And there's one version of this which says they try to be the in-between. They try to act as this buffer between this new Trump administration and what's happening in the UK and Brexit, whilst maintaining all of a huge market relationship with the UK. There's another version which says they can't. They can't. They fundamentally can't keep that ball in the air because of the border issues, and they have to cleave much more across the Atlantic. And frankly, I don't think they want to do that right now. Just to go back to Theresa May, because it is interesting at the moment as you watch her reputation fluctuate in, in the very short time she's been prime minister we had the period where people thought she was a genius because she was so ruthless to start with and she seemed fearless and she did these things that pe people were shocked by but they thought wow she must know what she's doing like making Boris Johnson foreign secretary and then she seemed to trounce Jeremy Corbyn at her first prime minister's questions and she was extraordinarily confident and then the summer came and then she gave her speech at the Conservative Party conference, which was, again, fearless, but also then people started to wonder, does she really know what she's saying? And now we're in this kind of trough of her reputation. I hear from people that Theresa May is the most oversold politician that they can remember and that, that, that this administration is already in desperate trouble and the three musketeers, the three Brexiteers are completely the laughingstock of Europe and so on. But then just listening to Helen then, I wondered... Maybe we need to go back a bit to the first few. Maybe she does know what she's doing, because the key questions here are about the sequencing of the fights that she has to have. 
and again, there was the view early on that these three Brexiteers were her fool guys. I mean, they were the shield. Boris Johnson can indeed go around making a fool of himself in Europe. Or maybe he isn't anyway. Maybe Europeans are just overreacting or they're using him as a proxy for Trump, whatever. But actually, the key questions are these questions about sequencing of the parliamentary fight she has to have and then when the general election comes. And she still is broadly in control of that agenda. I think. Yes. May's consistent strategy is to say as little as possible. And that's partly what makes people mad, because they, the opposition can't oppose anything if the government isn't going to say what it's doing. And it makes the journalists mad, because they like to have things to write about. And as I say, we're in a broader political world where a lot of the important conversations that are going on are going on in private, not in public. Which is one of the ironic consequences of a networked world in which we're meant to believe everything is out there on social media. Actually, the real story is always hidden now. That's right. And so May does have this advantage that by giving away as little as possible, she preserves a certain freedom of action in the future. The trouble is the extraordinary processes that the British state is caught up in in the moment just may mean that there is no freedom of action in the future, that the British government is dealing with something that is basically beyond its administrative capacity to cope with, with far too much economic certainty and the attendant political risks. And she's making a huge gamble, but in a sense she is doing the things that she has had to do if she wanted to seize the premiership and, at least for the time being, hold it. But as you said right at the start of this podcast, everything will turn on, does she manage to pull something off? And it it is beyond her personal control whether she does or not. Uh, But that is what's going to decide her reputation, the reputation of her government. It goes back to those there's a version of those remarks that Max Weber makes in Politics as a Vocation, that politicians are not in control of what happens to them and they're not in control of uh, events, but they, they have to be seen to take responsibility for what happens on their watch, because that's what it is to be a modern politician. And what about the other thing I said at the beginning, which is, does this government have any freedom of manoeuvre really to craft a new kind of economic policy or a new kind of domestic agenda? Or is it fundamentally constrained in, in the way that all governments have been constrained since 2008 by a set of economic circumstances that are beyond its control? I think that all governments at the moment are at the mercy of events and they're at the mercy of um, the bond markets uh, and they're at the mercy of what the Fed does. And as a, as a consequence of being at the mercy of the Fed, they're also at the mercy of if and when this Eurozone crisis is going to return. And I think that if you think about Theresa May, one of her political gifts seems to be a capacity for silence. Now, that's an odd gift for a prime minister to have, particularly in the age in which we live, where communication and is it's concerned. not Donald Trump's gift, so that's one definite <laughs> cleavage between the two of them. Not yet, anyway. No, 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 that, that, that's certainly true. Now, it could be that with all these unknowns ahead of us, that that gift is a pretty important one and potentially a decisive one because she's not going to get trapped into positions that she can't possibly deliver on. But it, it does mean she's going to be subject to an awful lot of criticism by people saying that she doesn't know what she's doing because in some sense she isn't doing anything. Now, I think that's in part wise because she has to know how certain things are going to play out before working out what a strategy can be for trying to um, realise Brexit. The world is just going to look very different by the time we, we get to March, April than it does now. And um, the media are going to, in the in the interim, as I say, make lots of critical remarks about 
directionless, purposeless, rudderless um, government. But actually, that is probably all that the government is capable of in some sense um, at the moment. It does not have the capacity to act in a meaningful way at the moment. I just said that she has the benefit of an opposition which has still not got its act together. And so some of the silence is... It's a space that's been given to her by the fact that the opposition isn't strong and isn't actually acting in the way that you might want them to act, given the current circumstances. It is also interesting to say that, yes, some of the silence is tactically very astute, but there is a lot of worry that many of the decisions that were taken immediately were very ad hoc. And they're going to run out. So the bank levy, for example, when we're talking about corporation tax, that's going to go away very, very soon. So how do you put that back together again? And tying back to what's happening today after we've spoken, some of this has to be clarified in the autumn statement. And so the silence ends a little bit in about two hours. And it depends on how many constraints they take off from the old Osborne rules and how many pieces of clarity they give in terms of the forward spending profile. I'm not expecting a huge amount of detail, but it will box them in a little. And just to go back to what Chris said, is again, sometimes some of the feedback that we get on this podcast is that we're a bit dismissive of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. And we do live in an age where you dismiss things at your peril because you never, never know what's coming next. And I don't think we should be entirely dismissive because, as Chris suggested, there is an emerging strategy here. There is also clearly a division probably between Keir Starmer and McDonnell and Corbyn. But there does seem to have been a view taken by the Labour Party, first of all, that an election may be coming sooner rather than later and they need to get their act together. And secondly, that they are not going to oppose Brexit. Um, And that, if nothing else, that is a coherent strategic choice. I'm looking around the, the table, isn't it? Part of the decision not to oppose Brexit on the part of the Labour Party is is to prevent a new election being held. I think that has to be part of their calculation, knowing that for the next few years, at least, the Labour Party is, despite all the claims to be on election footing, is unable to fight with any realistic prospect. So you don't believe the the stories that they are gearing up? Oh, I think think that's a show, essentially, on the part of the Labour Party. There's no real prospect for them of actually doing better in a forthcoming election than they did in 2015. So in that sense, at least, um, not opposing the government over Brexit has to be a significant part of preventing that happening. There's been a a while that I've been thinking that um, Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be especially averse to an early election and a heavy Labour defeat, because his interest at the moment is in securing the leadership of the Labour Party for an ideologically like-minded successor. And uh, I don't think he enjoys being leader of the opposition. He's quite an old man, certainly an old man in terms of the usual age profile of... Not as old as the next president of the United States. Frontline British politicians. (laughs) You're not Uh, even going to acknowledge that I say that. (laughs) Corbyn's the kind of person who's always been committed to a politics that says the movement is more important than the leader, than any individual. And he does have a strong interest in trying to make sure that the Labour Party uh, continues to be led by somebody with his ideological views. Now, one way to do that is to wait for an election that's coming several years down the pipeline and through the process of deselection and through the process of getting ideological allies in place, make sure that the Parliamentary Labour Party has at least 15% of its membership after the election willing to support a member of what's sometimes called the core group to succeed to the leadership. That's only likely to happen if there's 
an election sooner rather than later if there's a big Labour defeat, because Corbyn supporters do tend to be clustered in the safe seats rather, rather than the marginals. And so a big Labour wipeout, if Labour were reduced to about 150 seats, it's much more likely that Corbyn supporters would have the numerical strength to put one of them into the leadership. One of the problems, though, is it's not at all clear who that leader would be. In recent months, all the focus has been on Clive Lewis, the Norwich MP, and there have been two interesting developments. One is this story about how Seamus Mill sabotaged his conference speech, suggesting that there's a froideur between uh, Lewis and the uh, leadership's inner circle. But the other is Norwich is exactly the kind of place where the Liberal Democrats are likely to do quite well in the not-too-distant future. It's the kind of place with a lot of students, with a lot of people. It's voted Liberal Democrat in the past. Lewis has a marginal seat. And there could be no guarantee at all that he would hold his seat if there were an early election. So I think Corbyn is in a, is in a quandary. And it may very well be that these kinds of considerations have fed into a decision to try and give the government a relatively easy ride on Brexit, see how the political landscape shakes out and take things from there. I think there was something in that, but I would say that what Corbyn has done, or Corbyn and Macdonald perhaps we should say, have done is to in part keep Labour in the game uh, in terms of the next election by saying they're not going to oppose Brexit. I think it would be fundamentally electoral suicide for Labour to have come out and oppose um, Brexit in the way in which the Liberal Democrats are effectively doing but at the same time that the two of them have embraced a position that is against opposing Brexit, but does not want to engage at all with the freedom of movement issue, which is a significant part of why we are heading towards Brexit or seem to be heading towards Brexit anyway. And that is an odd position for Labour, I think, to have got into, because on the one hand, they're taking the problem Labour faces strategically seriously. On the other hand, they're not, because it's just not a fundamental engagement with what does the Labour Party do in face of the fact that significant parts of Labour and former Labour voters are not happy with high levels of immigration into Britain. That has been a problem for the Labour Party since at least 2005, and it's not clear how Corbyn and McDonnell are engaging with that. Now, in order to engage with that, that doesn't mean that they have to move themselves into a position that's kind of like one the Conservative Party is now in. But I think that they do have to have some kind of answer about how they're going to win back those voters who are disaffected with the Labour Party for those reasons. I think we'll end it there. So Jeremy Corbyn might know what he's doing strategically. He might not. Theresa May might know what she's doing strategically. She might not. But at least we were talking about Liberal Democrat prospects in Norwich, which takes us a long way from Donald Trump. I don't think that he's worrying about that at the moment. And we didn't talk about Lord Farage as the next ambassador to the United States either. Do join us again next week. We're going to be returning to talk about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's America. I'll be speaking to the writer and journalist Gary Young about gun violence, but also about his travels through Trump's America and what he's seen and the people that he's spoken to there. And we'll also talk about the latest developments as we do every week. So please join us then. Do please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Thanks very much. Apparently Donald Trump doesn't even follow Farage on Twitter. Stop. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why it's Well, that's... Yeah. Well, he's dead. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, like... Ooh. Yeah. Why was his... Sorry, this is a bit... Oh, I do like the fact we were talking about Liberal Democrats. <laughs> I know, exactly. It's like, yeah, that's how, that's how yeah. this podcast started. Exactly, that's where we came from. Good, that was fine, right? We keep hearing all these things about Liberal Democrat recovery, then you look at every single opinion poll that's
it's published and they still can't get to 10%. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>